Hey everyone, this is Matt Kamen, your illustrious host for Nonprofit on the Rocks and the co-founder of Envision Consulting. And with us as always is Ashley Watterson, our producer. How are you, Ashley? I'm doing great, Matt. I think that people need to know that today's episode is like monumental. It's gargantuous. It's the best thing ever. There's so many things happening today. It's so good. We're just making up words like monumentous. Today's episode Ashley is like crazy. Well, and it's also a bit of a milestone for us because this is the first time, Matt, that you have really taken your hosting skills to the next level and you're interviewing not one, but two guests. And that's a whole thing to have to like navigate. And I must say you did it pretty well, bud. I want to believe I did, but I guess our our listeners will have to let us know. And by the way, they came to us. Like that was what's so cool about this is that they reached out to us. So we're getting people who like want to be interviewed on this show. Another really cool thing that makes this a unique episode. These guys are located in Chicago, Illinois, which puts a pin on the map for where Nonprofit on the Rocks has never gone yet. Do you think that people are listening to us across the country? Across the country, Matt, across the world. Did Envision not get a hit on a search from Peru? Yes. We got someone from Zambia that reached out to us. So we are completely international. So, uh, I mean, you've got huge news for this episode. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. For those of you who bother to listen to Matt and me talk in the beginning of these shows and not just do the 30-second skip all the way through, um, first of all, thank you. But um, if you've been following us in our show You know that a through line that we've been uh, talking about throughout our seasons is our desire to get sponsorship and partnership. And you also know that Matt's dream, other than having someone slide into his DMs, because that's dream number one, is to have a bourbon partner or sponsor. And we are so excited to announce that we are partnering with an awesome nonprofit organization called Bourbon Charity. So we're going to be talking more about Bourbon Charity in the episode. So even if you did your 30 second skip through this part, you're going to hear about Bourbon Charity in the episode. I mean, mind blown, huge success. We get bourbon and nonprofit together as one in Nonprofit on the Rocks podcast. That's it's it's insane. It's kismet. I don't even know what that means, but should we maybe stop while we're behind? Like, should we like right now, should this be our last episode? I feel like it's quit while we're ahead, but stop while we're behind could also be what we're doing technically. In fact, Matt, I feel like if we were to quit down, we would be stopping while we're behind. We have so much more to go. So I don't want to stop. I feel like we are just starting to scratch the surface of where our show can go. All right. All right. Well, because you said so, Ashley, only because you said so, let's do another season. You said it. We're continuing on the season three. I mean, I think if we were to stop, Matt, that it would create such a stir. You know, it it would be like anytime they stop a really popular show and the fans would demand it to keep going. So I say we just preemptively just assume that that's happening and just keep going. So... uh, This is our last episode of season two, and I am beyond excited because we have, we have Matt Swain, we have Bourbon Charity that we're going to talk about, we're interviewing two people who reached out to us from Chicago. I think we should just give them a proper introduction in our intro here. Sure. So today's guests are two really cool guys, Jim Elliott and Ron Rispoli. Jim is the founder of Dive Heart, which is a really cool organization that teaches scuba diving to individuals with disabilities, and they are international. And Ron is not only a board member of Dive Heart, but he's also a recreation therapist, and he works with kids in adaptive sports. And a really other cool thing about Ron is that he himself is a Paralympic athlete in archery, which, by the way, is pretty cool because he can't use his right arm. Yeah. He talks about that a little in the episode about how there was an accident when he was a a kid, about four, and he lost the use of his right arm, but it certainly has not slowed him down. And that is something that becomes very clear in this uh, episode, as well as just the inspiration of how limitless people's potential really is and how these guys exemplify that. And this episode comes out at the beginning of the Paralympics in Tokyo. 
I hope everybody enjoys this podcast with two guests, Jim and Ron. And I hope that I did a good enough job so that you would know when each one is actually talking and answering my questions. Don't forget to find us on the web, envisionnonprofit.com and like us and subscribe. So welcome, everybody. I'm so happy for this show. We are launching this and and producing this and putting it out there as the Paralympics uh, happen. So this is just something that's really near and dear to Ashley's and my art. I have two guys that I think everybody's going to be really interested about from an organization called Diapart, which is located in Chicago. So Jim, Ron, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for helping us share the story. Sure. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having us on here. We appreciate it. I'm going to assume from what I heard what you said earlier that you guys have not listened to a podcast, so you have absolutely no idea what you're in for. Is that a true statement? <laughs> actually, you actually listened to one of our podcasts. I have listened to, um, I think, part of one, for sure. Yeah, so. I won't be offended at all. And Ron, not so much, right? You were just like, whatever, I'm, I'm just going to do this. Hey, let's do it. Come on. All right. See, I want everybody to hear this, that they they totally just didn't listen to this show. So people need to know uh, you guys are terrible. Okay. Uh, on that note, this is a happy hour podcast. So I'm drinking some fantastic Weller bourbon. What are you guys drinking? Uh, this is single malt scotch, actually. Okay. Nice. Yeah. This is wow. some of your finest beer. <laughs> <Here>. <laughs> All right. Um, cheers, guys. Salud. Mm. Okay. I will say one thing, Ron, that I that I, uh, I try not to make these podcasts about me all the time, but it's very hard for me to do that. My husband and I were just in Europe and I'm not a beer guy. I truly am not a beer guy, but we were in Austria for about eight days and I drank like so much beer that now it's like all I want, which is really bad. <laughs> you know, like in, in Germany and Austria, they have beer for breakfast. So yeah. I did, um, which is a real problem for my liver. So, <laughs> I, all in moderation, my friend. That word is a hard word, especially during COVID. Like, um, okay, so I'd love to start, Jim, if it's okay with you, since you're the founder of the sure. organization, if you can just tell us a little bit about Die of Heart and why you went crazy and decided you wanted to actually start. I know, on- right? I know, yeah. It, it's, well, you know, it, it's kind of like my, my dad was a disabled army vet. And uh, my best friend had cerebral palsy in grade school, and I walked him to school so kids wouldn't pick on him because he had a different kind of a, a gait when he walked. And then I married a lady, and, and she had two kids, and they had different kinds of abilities, and then we had one or two, actually. And so I had four kids at 24, and my oldest daughter was blind, and I got her involved in downhill skiing in the 80s when I was at WGN Radio. And I saw skiing turn people's lives around, and I went, wow, and this is downhill skiing. Okay. And I, and I said, wow, if skiing can do that, I know what diving can do. Cause I started diving in college as a journalism major. I thought if I have to interview Jacques Cousteau or someone like that, I better not a scuba dive. So I, I had no burning ambition to learn to dive, but I knew if we get guys out of wheelchairs and could get them standing up underwater in neutral buoyancy, that it would be beneficial physiologically and psychologically and stuff like that. So, um, so after I, I helped start up a TV station for the Tribune Company called Chicago Land Television News, I, I said, you know, my kids are growing gone. I'm going to give this a shot in diving, what I've been doing in skiing since the mid-80s. And here we are. I mean, okay, we're going to have to dive into dive into that. See, we're going to have to get into that a little bit more because it's not that easy to just get to here we are. But two questions. First, did you actually interview Jacques Cousteau? Uh, I know Jacques Cousteau's son, Jean-Michel, and I, I do know him. We meet at trade dive shows all the time, um, but I never got a chance to meet Jacques Cousteau. He passed before I, yeah. So if you could interview him right now, what would be like one question, one burning question that you would want to ask him? Well, you know, there was an engineer that helped him develop self-contained underwater breathing apparatus, scuba diving, um, and his name was Gagnon. And I'd like to probably ask him about the nuance of that relationship. That would be what I would be interested in personally. Okay, cool. So you decided that this nonprofit needed to exist, right? And here we are. So you've now completely just glossed over everything in the middle. Can you talk a little bit about what was the biggest challenge to actually really starting it, aside from filing the paperwork with the IRS? 
Sure. You know, in my in, in decades in the media business, I had a lot of friends. Some were lawyers. And and I said, I went to one who I taught his kids how to scuba dive. And I said, hey, you know, I got this idea for Dive Heart and I want to help people with disabilities. And I want to do the same thing I did in skiing. What do you think? And he goes, well, let me get back to you. So he, he called me and he said, you know, I talked to my partners and we're going to do all your 501c3 incorporation pro bono. And we're going to do all your trademark work pro bono. And I'm like, oh my God, this is like real. And all of a sudden we're off to the races within 30 days of his doing the paperwork, the law firm. We were able to go out and actually raise money, which is kind of what I did in the media business after I got done with the, the writing side of it. And I thought we were just going to be a little club, like the Blind Ski Club. You know, we would go to little ski hills in Wisconsin, and then we would go to out to Colorado once a year, and then we'd have a pizza party fundraiser in the summer. And so I thought, okay, we're going to do pool stuff. We'll do the quarry in the summer once in a while, and then we'll do a trip to Florida, right, once or twice a year. That was it. Had no idea that we were going to be where we're at right now. We have programs all over the world. We've become actually a training agency so that um, instructors all over the world can learn to do adaptive diving. And we're doing research with university medical centers. We're not chasing the dive industry. It's really about therapy and, and how we can help people with their body, mind, and spirit, you know, have them feel valued and give them a purpose, a reason to get up in the morning. It's amazing how powerful this is. And, and really, there's a lot of great therapies out there, and I don't knock any of them, you know, but we have the franchise on zero gravity, and we're going to completely take advantage of that because it's the closest thing there is to being an astronaut on Earth. That's very cool. I didn't even think about it that way, but you're right. Diving is kind of like being in a, that's really cool. And by the way, Jim, you failed my question of how did you get from the beginning to where you are now, but that's okay. Cause I'm going to bother Ron about that. But I did <laughs> want to just say to the listeners, filing your paperwork with the IRS is a real pain. I think now with COVID, it takes somewhere between three to 12 months. It's not an easy thing to do. It's very expensive to do it. <laughs> and the fact, honestly, Jim, that you got that for free and that people put together your logo and on your marketing for free, I think speaks a lot to um, your passion and how you ask people for things. So with that, because you did not answer my question, we're gonna move on to Ron. Because uh, Ron, <laughs> you're like a forever volunteer, you're the star board member, you are behind this program. So what did Jim say to you to be like, all right, you got me, I'm in. I'm gonna give you my time. Yeah, I, I'm gonna tell you this story. It's honest to God truth. and. You know, we talk about the stars lining up. They did. Uh, it was 2003. I went to Shriners Hospital. I had a professional conference. And I see Jim, didn't know him at the time, with one of those trifolds on a, uh, on a table with some pictures of scuba diving. And I saw these kids there in these pictures, scuba diving. And I was, I was a scuba diver before I met him. But uh, I said, hey, man, what, what's, what's this all about? He's like, well, you know, I got this small little organization here. We take kids with disabilities, scuba diving, make them feel good. It's a lot of fun. And I mean, again, with the stars lining up, I'm like, I'm a scuba diver. And the work that I do, the field that I'm in, it's working with kids with disabilities. And we have a pool at my place. So I talked to my boss who's there with me. And I'm like, we met, we meet this guy who's got an organization price scuba diving for kids with disabilities. You're a scuba diver. I'm a scuba diver. We have kids with disabilities and we have a pool. You think this is coincidence? He didn't do anything to reel me in. It was just the fact that he had this organization there and I had a supply of students that could benefit by it. I am absolutely 100% behind the mission of the organization because with the work that I do, I'm trying to get my students into different sports and activities because uh, all my students have disabilities and I'm trying to get them to do things that they didn't think they could do or they never knew existed before. Say, hey, if you want to do it, we'll find a way. So I have, I have two questions. The first is why kids with disabilities? Why is that uh, a passion of yours? You know, it's an interesting question, Matt, because um, I myself have a disability. I was uh, hit by a car when I was four years old, so 50 years. Um, but ironically, even when I was younger, all the sports I played, none of them were adapted. I played able-bodied sports my whole life until I started doing archery, which I'm sure we're going to get to in a little bit. But um, 
until then, every sport I did was all able-bodied sports. I just want to stop you for one second. I hate that term able-bodied. I think that that's just, I mean, we're all, you know, it's a terrible term. So I want to say that you were just in sports, period, with, you know, everybody. That's the way I like to look at it. And I promise you I'm not a PC guy in any way. But I just think able versus disabled is not the best word. I, I just want to jump in really quick. Ron, I'll hand it back off to you. But um, along that, that line of thinking about terminology, I had a girl with no arms and no legs um, give me a tour of the Houston uh, Shriners Hospital years ago. And she was giving me this tour and a coworker walked up and gave her a hard time about something. She looked up, she goes, what do you know? You're a tabby. And I go, what's a tabby? And she goes, temporarily able-bodied individual. And I went, wow, that's me. That's everybody, right? So it's just a funny term. Tabby. All right. All right. I'm going to use that for now on. So. <laughs> Sorry, Ron. So, but I, I do want to go back to archery after this. So I want to, as a good interviewer, I'm going to remember that. Okay. So, so you were saying, so you were, you were with tabbies uh, in archery and then. Well, as I said, um, <clears throat> I happened to get into the field. I had a change of my, my work, my, my whole profession changed when I was about 30 and I got into working with people with disabilities. Um, not because I have one, it's just, I felt good when I did volunteer work for different organizations. And then I found out I could get paid to do what I was doing for free. And I said, well, sign me up. And for about 12 years, I would do programs with my students with Dive Heart in our pool on a monthly basis. And then every year for 12 years, we would take our students to the Florida Keys to dive in the Florida Keys. Now, it was more than just the experience of going to Florida. It was the whole thing of getting on an airplane, socializing with people you'd never met, um, diving in the ocean. And when we talk about you know people with disabilities, when you talk about scuba diving in general, I think 1% of the population dives. And I don't mean in the US, I mean worldwide. And if you talk about people with disabilities that dive, it's like 0.0001%. So there's very few people with disabilities that dive. And because it's gravity free, it's something that just about everybody can do. So we make certain that our participants get cleared medically, that they don't have any medical reasons why they can't dive, but just by having a disability should not preclude them from diving. And we work with people that are quadriplegic, people that are blind, people that uh, have autism, depending on the disability, especially when you talk about a cognitive disability or autism and you get them underwater, they start focusing more. And when you're done and they come up, you can see the joy in their face. And more so than that, when you see their families or their caregivers, see how they're doing, it just makes everything worth the effort that we put in because it's changed their lives. Sure. I'm going to ask something personal, which um, I can't help. That's what I do. But I will say, you know, on my end, I've always wanted to dive. I've always wanted to, to jump out of a plane. I'm epileptic. So with epilepsy, I actually cannot do that, which is just such a bummer. I don't have seizures because I have medication and it works. And thank God for that. But um, it is one of those things that I really wish I could do, but I am not allowed to. You may be able to in the future. We're, we're trying to build a deep warm water uh, therapy pool, basically, that allows us to replicate some of the benefits we see in, in deep water in the ocean. Studying epilepsy is something we're very interested in helping to facilitate. Epilepsy is um, is something, yeah, that is a contraindication that, that keeps you from diving. But it's on our list to do, to, to remedy, you know, so that you can dive. Listen, Jim, if you can make that work, I will happily yeah. I will happily fly to Chicago and I'll be your guinea pig. I just you know, actually I do have a question. Why guinea pig? Why is that the phrase that a guinea pig's the one that they throw in for? <clears throat> Good point. Where does that come from? Anybody know? No, okay. I don't. If somebody's listening out there, I want to know why it's a guinea pig, because that's right. I was I was gonna add, and I Jim, I know can tell a lot more about this, but we actually had a diver years ago uh, on a ventilator. And he actually went underwater. Um, and that was something that never happened before. So never say never. 
And I feel like also if I jump out of a plane, I'm going to be strapped to somebody. So if there, if I do have a seizure jumping out of a plane, well, it would suck because I wouldn't remember it. But I'm on somebody. So I feel like I'd be safe. You know, I don't know. Um, so I have a question, Ron. And again, like I push. So, you know, it's my job. Do you remember when you were four years old? Do you remember the accident? Um, the accident itself? No. I just remember I was a uh, pedestrian hit by a car impaired driver back in the early 1970s in Florida. A lot of people remember when they were three, four, five years old. I have very little memory and it's probably because of the traumatic incident, but this is how I grew up. So everything that I've done, I've done this way, which is different than somebody who's older and, you know, has the same injury or has uh, a stroke or what have you, because they've been used to doing things a certain way for so many years, and then they have to relearn how to do something. Whereas I grew up doing everything the way I do it. So it was my normal. Right. Do you remember what your, what anybody in your family said to you about like, you can do anything like this, don't let this stop you? <clears throat> well, it's interesting you say that because there's always people out there, oh, you shouldn't let him do this, or that's too dangerous for him to do that. And my mom's like, look, he's going to do what he wants to do. There was somebody that told her, you shouldn't let him ride a bike. Like, Come on. I played Little League all up and through high school, college, and, you know, into my 30s. Uh, I played football in high school. Well, until everybody else kept growing and I stopped growing, then I wised up a bit. <laughs> but um, no, I just, if I saw something I wanted to do, I just did it and I did it my way. Jim was I have a friend whose daughter is is mm -hmm. autistic. And, yeah. and again, we have these conversations all the time, which is she's in her world. She's happy. That's her world. But as a parent, again, you want to have a certain life for your kid, right? Um, sure. So what do you tell this parent? My daughter is born blind. So um, I was around a lot of families that had other children that were blind. And I saw things that they did that really crippled their children. You're, you're blind. You can't do that. I mean, my daughter was 13. We went to an event and, and, and parents were cutting their kids food for them. I'm like, what are you doing? They're like, Johnny's blind. He can't do that. I'm like, he's blind. He can use his hands. He can, you know. right. And this is a natural instinct for parents to want to protect, to, to covet. Um, I think that it's, it's going to be a stretch, but if you can let your child grow in their space and <laughs> give them the tools, but keep them safe, right? In a way that's kind of like what we do on boats. When I got a guy who's really, really independent and wants to do everything by himself and he can't use his legs and we're like, you do what you can, but we're going to be there to spot you. So I think if parents can spot their kids give them some freedom, give them some rope and let them go out and do stuff. Don't tell them they can't do it. They're going to grow up not believing they can do anything then. One of the reasons why I was so excited about, about meeting you guys and doing this interview and also just what you do. And we'll get back, Jim, to, to the beginning of how you got to where you are, because again, it's really important for people to hear how you, how you found a nonprofit and honestly how you grow it. But there's an organization in Tel Aviv in Israel. It's called the Israel Sport Center for the Disabled. I spent a year in Israel and I volunteered there. And I remember I played a game of tennis again. Oh, no, 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 not tennis. It was um, ping pong against uh, a woman who was in a wheelchair, couldn't move her legs and didn't have hands. Um, she had arms, but she didn't have hands. And, and she kicked my ass in ping pong. It wasn't even close. Like she kicked my ass and she couldn't move her legs and she didn't have hands and <clears throat> I fell in love with that organization and so you know what it what it taught me is and this is I was I was in my 20s which of course was yesterday right um, but what it what it taught me was that um, you should never take anything for granted in life and though we always complain about everything right because that's what we do I mean I'm a complainer every day that you should be happy with what you have and really truly appreciate it cheers to you <laughs> So let's back up. Okay, so I um, I interviewed a friend of mine who started a community farm and made it a nonprofit. And now she's where you were 20 years ago. It's her first year. 
She's looking for donors. She's built her board, but she's, you know, where you, she just got her 501c3 paperwork uh, because of course, you know, everything's shut down with COVID. And so uh, you're 20, we're 20 years later and you are international and you've got programs everywhere and people coming to you and you've got the finance. I mean, how did you actually get to where you are? I'm really frugal. <laughs> you know, um, it's really interesting. A, a good story that explains where my head's at is people donate gear to us and we get hundreds and hundreds of donated wetsuits. And some are from like the 50s, and which are totally unusable because they're all brittle. But either they're going to go in a landfill or I'm going to find a recycler. And I found a recycler in New Jersey who um, takes them and makes coasters and yoga mats and welcome mats with our logos on them. And we use those to help fund our adaptive scuba programs. So we're helping the environment and we're helping fund our programs at the same time. And it makes great stories in the dive media era, you know, arena. Um, but it's it's like turning over all the rocks. It's like, I don't draw a salary. Dive Heart couldn't afford me, to be honest with you. I do. I work seven days a week. I do the job of three people. I'm not saying that this brag, but it's like, I do it because I, I want this to survive. And we inspire volunteers around the world to, to get involved and do things. I mean, we have one of the top IT guys from Major League Baseball that does our IT for us for free as a, as a donor. I don't go to lawyers and ask them for money. I go in and ask lawyers for legal services. I don't go to a car dealer and ask him for money. I go to a car dealer and say, can you maintain our vehicles for us? Can we park our vehicles at your space? If I get like 80% of all our expenses covered through in-kind donations, because people like what we do, I only got to raise 20% in cash then. Uh-oh, I think all of you hear the music. I think that this is the perfect time for a maximum across America about in-kind donations. Ashley, please give me up. You got it, Matt. In-kind donations, just for people who are listening and don't know, in-kind donations are not dollars, but you're giving either your time or your resources or whatever it is that you do for free. That's what in-kind means. It's really a great way to cut your expense line items. So if you need paper or you need um, food or whatever it is, if people give you that, that's a huge plus. Thank you, Matt, for teaching our listeners a little bit more about what an in-kind donation is. I think we are all the better for having been matsplained. Now back to this episode with Jim Elliott and Ron Rispoli of Dive Heart. Ron, I want to ask you, because you're on this board, I think it's really important for people to join boards of directors and take on all of the liability of the organization. It is not an easy thing to do. You are doing something that is good for an organization, but you are also taking a lot on. So what is your favorite thing about being a board member of this organization? I, I see where this can go and how it can change lives. And being on the board and being a part of something where you can be the change, you can make things happen. That's what it's all about. And what is your least favorite thing about being a board member? Not necessarily about this organization, but as a, as a board member, what is your least favorite thing? Well, I mean, sometimes you have ideas and other board members look at you cross-eyed, like, where's this coming from? Or are you out of your mind? I mean, the, the downside is sometimes you don't always get what you want, but when you can affect change and you can see what it does for other people, that's why you stay there. That's why you're committed to doing what you do. So if if I handed you a check right now, Ron, here you go. Here's a million dollars. Handing you a check for a million dollars. What do you do? What's one thing that Dive Heart should do? Really, it's about reaching out to more people. Because even though we're pretty big in the Chicagoland area, and even though we're national and international, there's still a whole lot of people that don't know about us. So if we could reach more people and get more instructors and more buddies and more volunteers, we could offer this to more people worldwide. So I have two questions for you. What the hell is Chicago land? Why isn't it just Chicago? What is Chicago land? Well, I mean, you've got Chicago proper, which is a city. And then you've got all the color counties and cities that are just outside of Chicago. I can, I can tell you exactly where Chicago land came from. I was with the Chicago Tribune when it was developed. That term was developed. It was a tribune word. It's, it's a marketing term. 
It's a, it's a promotional term. My dad would never drive to Chicago. Never. Didn't want anything to do with going downtown. But when you say Chicago land, then uh, you got Disneyland, you got Chicago land. You got all, right? I never heard yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, it's true. The Tribune, we developed it there for marketing, for our promotional purposes. And, uh, and it stuck. This is like the first I've ever heard of Chicago land. So it's a big deal. Also, it is fucking freezing in Chicago. I don't know how they got, how you guys are still there. It's freezing in Chicago. That's why we dive in Florida and Cozumel and stuff like that. So, okay. I'm going to give you the same question, Jim. Here's a check for a million dollars. What do you do? That's easy for me because our next phase of what we want to do is replicate in a confined warm water environment what we're discovering in open water. That means building a pool that's warm and deep. And the first million dollars would go towards vetting the land, doing borings, and that would be the first step. Like everybody comes to us and they're like, how do we find donors? How do we find board members? How did you find that person? I'm lucky because I've, I've been on nonprofit boards when I was in the media business, right? So I was with the Chicago Tribune, WGN Radio, and I helped start up a TV station for the Tribune Company. So I, and I, I grew up here. So I'm decades of connections. And people go, why don't you go to Florida and start it, you know, do it in Florida. You're close to the ocean and blah, blah. I'm like, but I know everybody here. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like, you you use the connections that you have and, and the relationships that you have. It's, it's about relationships in my mind. Mm -hmm. Limit your expectations, be honest, be transparent, show that people what you're doing and, and go forward and do the work every day. Hey, Jim, Ron, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but someone asked me the other day, like, what is your show really about at its essence? And I didn't really have an answer, so I thought I'd bring it to you. I would tell you that our show truly is about me. And the two favorite things in my life are brown liquor and charity. So you would say bourbon and charity are two things that are really both seminal to who you are and what the show is about? I mean, I feel like Philip's going to be mad if I don't mention him, but he's, you know, one of those important parts of my life. But if you really narrow it down, I'm going to say bourbon and nonprofit. Wow. It is so crazy that you say that because we have just partnered with an organization called, get this, Matt, Bourbon Charity. No. It's right there in the name. Okay, these guys over at Bourbon Charity, Matt, have raised $1.2 million through fundraising. Yeah, their founder auctions off his own private collection of vintage bourbon for charity. I need to backtrack for a second. And when I said that bourbon and charity are my two favorite things, I need to say Philip because I need Philip to purchase me one of those amazing bottles of bourbon. I'll go back and post and put Philip as number one, bourbon and charity, two and three. And then what he's going to do is he's going to hear that he's my number one and then maybe just go to this amazing charity that I am beyond excited about and maybe purchases me a nice bottle. Well, you tell Philip he can go to bourboncharity.org and see all the bourbon that they might be auctioning off in the future. So I want everybody to go on to their website, bourboncharity.org, find me a bottle and send it my way. That sounds like a great idea. Now, once again, back to your interview with Ron and Jim. All bourbon won through sweepstakes, which help raise money for various charities. There's founders, right? And there's something called founder syndrome, as I'm sure you've heard. <laughs> so, and you have an executive director, and I'm sure Tina Marie is like, oh my God, that guy, Jim. Um, but, but tell us a little bit about how is a founder that you're letting Tina Marie, your executive director, actually run the organization? How do you do that? It's, it's, a, it's a process, right? When I started, when, when the lawyer said, we're going to do all your 501c3 stuff pro bono, I'm like, wow, we're real. And he goes, and I, I don't have a board, so I have to go out and pick board members. So I try to find a diverse board with skill sets that complement each other, people that I think will get along together theoretically. So that's kind of how I started. My biggest problem as a founder is shooting from the hip, making unilateral decisions on the fly, which I'm really good at, I think, to a degree. But Tina Marie is like, we're like yin and yang. I do not think like her at all. I'm like, what are you saying sometimes? And she looks at me like, you're crazy. But we complement each other, right, Ron? 
Tim is more right brain. Tina is more left brained. Jim has got these ideas. There's nothing that they're not good, but Tina reels them in and says, well, well, hold on a minute. These we can't do. Let's work with this. So, Ron, does he have founder syndrome or is Keena Marie, as the executive director of the organization, actually able to lead the organization? I'm not going to say that. <laughs> both, both, but, both. I mean, again, I mean, I, I've had disagreements with Jim about stuff through the years. I mean, I've been with the organization quite a long time, but it doesn't mean like I'm a yes man or we agree on everything. We fought on several things and some I'm still miffed about because they're still happening or what have you. But in the end, we both want the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And where Tina is involved, again, some things, that not that he doesn't have good ideas, but some aren't necessarily doable at this moment. And mm-hmm. Tina's like, where we're at, what we want to do, this is where we got to go now. Okay. And then the board chimes in on stuff too. So yeah. honestly, if we didn't have Jim who has these grandiose ideas, we would probably grow incrementally, but he's got these ideas and we get there. We get there, but not necessarily at the rate that he wants to get where he wants to go. Sure. So I've been a founder. I've started nonprofits and I've walked away. And I think it's very hard to be a founder and to still be there and to let a board and an executive director kind of, you know, manage things. And so I think Jim truly, um, I think it speaks a lot to you that you have a board who can make decisions that you have an executive director who can make decisions and like you're there to sort of still be that vision but a true founder that isn't you know getting in the way i'm assuming um but maybe we'll do a follow-up show with tina but um seriously (laughs) you know founding an organization which i feel like is so grammatically incorrect to say but founding an organization is a lot of work it's not easy to find your donors or to find your board you have to put your heart and soul into it And then at some point, you have to let somebody else take over. And it's not easy. It is not easy because it's your baby. And so the fact that you're doing that, Jim, I think um, truly does speak volumes to you for your passion for the organization. Well, thank you. It was a process, not an event. (laughs) It was tough. It was like learning to not say stuff when you wanted to jump in, right? Um, But, you know, Tina Marie's been great. And Ron and the board, I mean, I can't even imagine a better board right now for Dive Heart that I have right now. Uh, Just awesome people. And if I died tomorrow, I would be very comfortable that they would carry it to the next level without me. So, I mean, that's what you want as a founder. You want it to be sustainable. You know, Ron, what is like the... I mean, you've been doing this for a while. You've watched it. You've done dives. You've seen it for a while. What's like the coolest, the coolest experience that you've seen happen in the walk? Where I work, I've got students uh, with disabilities and a couple instances with my own students. And one just happened probably in the last couple of years where this young man uh, was paralyzed in a, in a freak accident on the playground and then not too long after that, had a stroke. So he had a few different things going on with him. And he's been in a wheelchair for the last 15 years. And on one of the trips, Jim had him underwater, again, gravity free. This young man was standing erect at the bottom of the ocean. The current was pushing him along. He was freaking walking on the bottom of the ocean first time that he was standing upright on his own in more than 15 years blows your mind away wow wow that's really cool and jim what's the coolest the coolest if you can i mean i know it's hard but one like really cool story that that that's a cool story what ron just said but um i had a girl and in the heavy lifting we really do is in swimming pools around the the world actually and one of the cool stories is uh, i had aaron in the water and Erin is severely disabled and cannot hold a regulator in her mouth. So she has a full face mask on. So I have her just in a five foot pool and I'm, I have a mask on and I'm just moving her around, holding on to her tank valve. And, and we're in a pool that um, part of the pool, there were some young girls at a pool party doing a birthday party or whatever. And they're like got little goggles on and they're looking underwater and they're seeing this kid who's like, 
severely disabled with a full face mask. I'm like, what is that? And scuba gear? And well, oh my God. And so we're, we're tooling around and I see these kids looking at her and they pop up out of the water. And I was, I just lifted my head and I said, Hey, you guys, she thinks you're mermaids. Come on over. So they like, go, we're mermaids. They come up and then they, they're there and, and Aaron's reaching out, right? She wants to like fist bump them or whatever. And so when they come up again, I said, she wants to like fist bump you. It's okay. So they come up and they're fist bumping her and she's like getting really excited and stuff like that. All she does is, is look forward to getting in the water with us and it gives her purpose. This is what she lives for. So we give people purpose, which is awesome. That's really cool. Okay. So as I said earlier at the beginning, if we still have people listening to us, we'll see. It's up to you guys. Like, let's hope that you guys are excited enough for people to listen. The Paralympics, they're coming up. What is like an event that you look forward to watch on the Paralympics? I'm going to have to say archery since um, I shoot competitive archery and I was vying for the uh, Olympics this year in Tokyo. So yeah, I'm a little biased towards the archery. I've never done archery. I feel like it's a really cool sport. Why should I take up archery? I can tell you why. I took it up. I am a very competitive person. If it's competitive, I want to win. I've been that way my whole life. And um, when I was in college, I had an opportunity to try out for the baseball team. And I never took it. And this is 35 years later. And I still look back and I kick myself for not doing it. And I keep saying, I wonder what if, right? Maybe I would have made it. Maybe I wouldn't but at least I would have known. So <clears throat> one of our volunteers with, with Dive Heart also was an archery instructor. And uh, he says, come out and try this. And again, because of my field, you would think I knew all about this. This is something I never did before. So I said, eh, no, 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 no. And the long and short of it, he got me to try archery and was with a, with a mouth tab, the only sport I've ever used an adaptive device. And I thought it was kind of fun, kind of cool. And then I got this crazy thought in my mind. I wonder what if I got good enough, could I get into the Olympics or in this case, the Paralympics? And again, it's a precision sport when you're shooting 50 meters and your bullseye is the size of a silver Silver. dollar or whatever at 50 meters. Yeah, it's it's very uh, competitive. And I just fell in love with the sport. What I like about that story is we all regret something that we didn't do in our lives. We all do. I mean, I, I certainly do. But I think that where we are is because we didn't do that. I think we somehow have to change that narrative that like maybe we regret it, but we wouldn't be where we are if we didn't, if we actually did it. And I think COVID has definitely taught me to do everything. As Life's best- too short. I don't want to die having regrets. So whatever's out there, why not do it? Because you don't know when... You're not going to have that opportunity again. Yep. Ron hasn't told you is that, and this is so cool. He holds his left arm out and and takes the the bow, the you know the string part in his teeth, and he holds it out. And he when he releases his jaw, and he can tell you the nuance of this. But when he releases, is when the arrow goes. And I mean, his left arm is like the Hulk. Seriously, I mean, don't get in an arm wrestling contest with Ron. But that he shoots with one arm. And, and holds it the bit in his mouth. It's just amazing to watch. I'm sure you've been asked this question, Ron, but I'm just, I'm so curious, you know, what do you tell people who say, I can't? I'm afraid to do that, right? What do you tell people? Depending on who you're talking with, where they're at, it's just letting them know it's okay to try it. You know, don't be afraid. Don't limit yourself. That's the key thing. Once you limit yourself, you put yourself in a box and you say, I can't do this and I can only do this. And then you're stuck there. So if you open yourself up to the possibility of doing something, then you are going to grow as a person. I love my students because they're like 18 to 22 and they're just, you know, getting out of high school, going into adult life. And a lot of them don't know about some of the opportunities out there. I want to show them you can do this. Do not limit yourself just because you sit in a wheelchair. Just don't limit yourself. So I do have one last question. And then, Jim, I want you to sell your organization because I want people to give to you. Do you think, Ron, that there should be a Paralympics versus an Olympics? 
That's an interesting question. And and I, I got to say this, please bear with me a second. I get so frustrated with people when you tell them about the Paralympics and they say, oh, that's great. The Special Olympics is a wonderful organization. The Special Olympics is a wonderful organization, but it is completely different than the Paralympics. And there are so many high intensity athletes in Paralympics that could actually be in the Olympics. And for the most part, all the sports are the same with slight modifications. These are elite athletes. They just happen to have a disability. Should there be a difference? I I think so, because in some instances, having a disability is not going to let you do some of the same things. Here's an example, the volleyball. They're in the sand or they're, you know, on the court and in Paralympics, it's sit volleyball. So they're in one spot. Those folks who are great athletes could not be in the Olympics because of their limited mobility, but they're just as good sitting on the floor. And the majority of the sports have no or very limited adaptation to the sport. Again, it just goes back to they have a disability. There was actually a a runner or two several years ago who was a Paralympian who got special permission to race in the Olympics, even with his prosthetic foot. I think he took like a, a bronze or something like that. So again, these are high quality athletes. They just happen to have a disability. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I, I hate it because I don't use that word very often, but I hate it. When people say, I feel bad for this person mm-hmm. because of their disability, or I right. feel bad for that person. Don't. Don't feel bad for them. They don't know. They don't know better. So their gut reaction is empathy. I feel bad for you. Well, you don't even know me. Well, it just they don't know the situation. Right. Honestly, and this is with Dive Heart, this is with the work I do, this is with my industry, is educating people. Even with the vernacular that people use, like you said, you don't like able-bodied. That is a standard term, but I I feel you where you're coming from. But there is a lot of terminology out there that people use that is not necessarily appropriate. They just don't know better. They haven't been educated. Right. And, you know, I think people also need to understand, first of all, just because there is a Paralympics versus an Olympics, it is impossible to compete. It is so much work. Just like you said, to hit a, like a, a silver dollar bullseye from how many feet away? 50, how many it was 50 away? meters, so it's 55 yards. So that's picture a football field. Yeah, that's impossible. You can't do that. Whether or not, like, it doesn't matter. You can't do that. So I think I think it's really important for people to know that, like, hey, just because you do have disability, you can do it. And it's just still is impossible. And, you know, these are true athletes. So I do hope that folks really do appreciate that. And especially with what you do at Dive Hard, and especially with what you do with folks who have a disability, for them to feel like they don't and for them to feel like they can do anything, that to me is what is so impressive about what you do. So Jim, tell me, why should somebody give to your organization? I want to say that Ron is very humble and did not admit that he just won a statewide championship in Illinois and he competed against tabbies. And we all know what tabbies are at this point, right? Um, So hats off to you, Ron, for that. And we try to change the language as well. He mentioned um, handicapped and crippled and disabled is no longer part of the vernacular. Um, It's adaptive. We all adapt. We all have to adapt. If you have arms and legs, you have to adapt. During COVID, we all had to adapt. So um, I believe, being a media guy, that a picture's worth a thousand words. I would send people to diveheart.org and click on media. There's a media kit where one of the two TED Talks I did is there. Um, you know, PBS did a documentary. We have a playlist on our, on our YouTube channel. So if you want to look at medical stories or you want to look at military stories or you want to look at the, the, the last 10 symposiums that we've done on adaptive scuba and scuba therapy and the benefits and listen to top hyperbaric physicians and rehab docs from around the country, you watch that stuff and it's going to blow you away. Especially when like people like Robert, who Ron was alluding to, talks about freedom. It's escaping gravity. I mean, 
imagine being Superman or Wonder Woman and jumping off a building and like hovering at an intersection and just looking down. I mean, that's what diving is. Because of way less than 1% of the people in the world do it, it's not on the radar for a lot of people with disabilities. So, you know, diefart.org, click on media, watch some stories, see what moves you. Facebook is a great tool. We raise more on Facebook, believe it or not, than we do on our donate tab. Some people might be running a family foundation or another charity or be with a corporation that where they have matching gifts. All those things help. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I, as I said, I am so impressed with what you do. Honestly, Jim and Ron, it was a pleasure speaking with you. This is the first podcast I've done it with two people. I hope our listeners are cool with that. You do so much good. And I thank you for that. Thank you. Well done, by the way. Good job. Yeah. We appreciate being on here and allowing us to tell our story to your listeners. Thank you, guys. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Matt. So uh, what'd you think? That was really hard to have to navigate between two different guests. And I thought you did an awesome job of bringing them both into what ended up being a really cool conversation. Thank you. It was a really fun interview. And you and I are super excited about doing an upcoming Happy, where we tout not only the accomplishments, if you will, of seasons one and two, but also what is coming up in season three. So that's going to be a super fun episode for us to do. Yes. So I want to thank you again, Ashley. I want to congratulate you for doing that nonprofit underscore on underscore the underscore rocks Instagram. And the posts are awesome. I'm just blown away by the fact that you care for making five cents an hour for this show. Thank you. Well, I work hard for my five cents an hour. It's been such a great adventure to be on with you. Honestly, we have talked to some super amazing people and I look forward to getting to edit all of these interviews because I'm like, what am I going to hear? What am I going to learn? So I just really hope our listeners out there are finding that kind of enjoyment from the experience of listening to you and our guests as I have. That's very nice, Ashley, but we're still going to do a review on the air. I just... I just want you to know that. Damn it. It's still going to happen. I just was really hoping that reading the script that I just read about how awesome you are was going to get me out of that. It was really close. Is there anything else, Ashley, anything else that you want our listeners to know before we go into season three? I just want them to know that producing this show has been the greatest gift in my life. And I'm just so blessed. No, I'm sorry. No, no. I'm cutting no, you off. Right no, no. Okay. No, we all hear it. We all know it. No. Well, it was worth a try. Yeah. I just want them to know that we're hoping that they do come back and listen to season three. And in the meantime, find us on all of our social accounts, Facebook, Instagram, at the nonprofit guy on Twitter, and on our website, of course, envisionnonprofit.com. You can find all the information about all of our past episodes and our guests, and we will see you next season.